Please turn back to page 111. Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 to 9, and can be found on page 727 of the Bibles in your pews. Isaiah chapter 42. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his law the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says. He who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light to the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place, and new things I declare, before they spring into being, I announce them to you. The second reading is taken from Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 34 and can be found on page 1113. Acts chapter 17, beginning at verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now, what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life, breath, and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth, 
and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, We want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named named Damaris, and a number of others. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. To Acts chapter 17, I'm told by the experts that the message to the Areopagus are the ten verses most discussed from the New Testament. So there you are. You're going to have that tonight. You may ask the question, if you look at a nerdy sheet, who are pagans to whom the message is being proclaimed? What is a pagan? Well, a pagan is not an atheist. They have their own particular problems. But pagans do believe in God or gods. They believe in the kind of gods they have made, whereas the Bible says God made us in his image. Uh, Pagans believe that we can make gods in our image, and there have been pagans since time began. And in the Acts of the Apostles, you have uh, two illustrations of Paul preaching to pagans. Back in chapter 14, on his first missionary journey, he preaches at a place called Lystra, and having done a miracle, they are so excited by this man who can perform miracles, they believe he's a god or he and Barnabas are gods so they try to worship them then comes in the opposition to point out that they're they're not what they should be and uh, they then turn to stone them it's a remarkable turn uh, around one minute they worship them as gods the next minute they stone them and leave Paul as if dead and when Paul preached to the pagans at Lystra they were the kind of uneducated pagans he used the message of harvest and said that God the creator, the one we read about in Isaiah's passage, that God the creator had always given them a witness through nature, through conscience, through harvest. But in chapter 17 we get the intellectual pagans, equal pagans, um, philosophers, people of great distinction, but nonetheless uh, unashamedly pagans. These were the clever ones. Many, many years ago when I was a, a young vicar here at Fulwood, one of the first jobs I had to do was to appoint the last headmistress of our school, which closed down. And when you're eating your, your spuds at the spud bar, you're standing where once children were educated in the school, uh, a very different building. So I appointed the last headmistress and she'd come from the other side of the city. And when she'd been here a few months, I inquired as to how she was getting on. Well, she said... Uh, It was wonderful at first because I had a kind of parent-teachers meeting and the other side of the city I was lucky to get half a dozen turning up. Here they all turned up. 
The only snag was half of them were teachers and they told me what they would do if they were running the the school themselves. So it wasn't always a a good thing. And then I said, what about the kids? Well, she said, they're just the same. Uh, A few of them are angels. Most are just normal children. And there are some devils. Uh, It was the same the other side of the city. The only snag is the ones here are clever devils and they're the worst. (laughs) So they are where I've got the clever devils we're talking about here. The intellectual pagans. Or get it like this. This is part of Paul's second missionary journey. And he gets to Europe, uh, not because he planned it. We may think coming to Europe was the most wonderful thing, but he didn't plan that immediately. But because the doors were shut in Acts 16, he has a Macedonian call, and Macedonia is Europe, and he gets to Philippi. And when he gets to Philippi, we have what I call the spiritual challenge. And you get the story of three very different people being gloriously changed. Then he gets to Athens. We'll see in a minute. He didn't mean to be there either. But he gets to Athens and here we have the intellectual challenge. Then in chapter 18 he moves on to Corinth. And there you get the moral challenge. Corinth was the most infamous city to play the Corinthian meant to be immoral in an extreme way. And he had a battle there. And then he went to Ephesus where for three years at his longest ministry... And that was the pastoral challenge. But Athens, he never meant to be there. There in verse 16, he was just waiting. Now, of course, Athens is the place everybody wants to visit. I've never been. Most people may have been to Athens on their trip around the world. And uh, you look at these ancient monuments, how wonderful they are. Can you imagine what they looked like when Paul was there 2,000 years ago? They were then new. If they're splendid now, how splendid they must have been then. And did Paul have his camera uh, to show to unwilling people for the rest of the year their holiday snaps? You know what they're like, these holiday snaps. Was Paul taking pictures? No, he was just greatly distressed. Didn't like it one little bit. He'd not meant to be there, but he happened to be there. So while he was there, he had to preach. What else could he do? He was never really on holiday. He was deeply concerned. And so we get this remarkable sermon as he preaches to the council, the Areopagus. When I was at school those many years ago, I had to study Milton's Areopagitica, I remember. can't remember a thing about it, but I had to study it all based on these remarkable words because Paul had to seize the opportunity. Now what is lovely, if you actually contrast Acts 17, the first half, is Paul preaching in Thessalonica to an audience where they knew their Bible, a Jewish audience, and he explains from the Scriptures the things about God, and he gets a mixed response. And when he gets to Athens, they don't have their Bibles there. Uh, They aren't the people steeped in the Old Testament. But he preaches just the same. He's flexible in the way he does it, but he doesn't change his message not one little bit. What is intriguing to me, just look at verse 31, uh, verse 21, sorry, in brackets in my version. A a little insight into what Athenians were like. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Doesn't that sound nice? That's all they wanted. They wanted novelties. They loved debate. They loved discussion. And uh, such people are still around. So long as we don't have to do anything, we love talking. We love to debate religion. We like to air our views, but we don't want anything that's going to change our lives. You see, paganism can be very convenient. 
Those gods are the gods you've made. They do what you want. They say what you want them to say because they're not there. Ah, but there's something more sinister. When Paul will write to the Corinthian church, he will say in 1 Corinthians 10 that pagans, verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 10, the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. It's not neutral. It's not just interesting. It's very dangerous. It's a little bit like Halloween in a way. In a way, it's just kids dressing up, but it's dangerous, you see. It's not a vacuum. If you will play around with witches and so on, you are living in dangerous territory. And if you will worship pagans, you're living in dangerous territory because those gods are not there, but demons are. And the devil loves pagans. And so Paul will be quite passionate about what he preaches when he speaks to these people who just love to talk and not do. Very moving to me to come back as an ex-vicar. Uh, an occasion like this is very, very moving. I find those four baptisms very moving and challenging. I confess that I'm rather glad it's only since my time we've got this pool. You see, I have no objection to total immersion. It's just I don't like water very much and I'm so delighted. I think Paul, you did a splendid job and Gareth... I'm glad it's you. But I'm all, I'm, I'm, I'm all pleased. I'm delighted. And it's lovely to come back and be reminded that God is at work and he's changing lives. Now, here's Paul proclaiming Christ in Athens. You notice in verse 16, he was deeply distressed. So he reasoned in the synagogue. He went first to the Jews, to the Jews, the ones who ought to have known the truth. And then eventually goes in the marketplace to talk around and then eventually gets his chance. Never ashamed. Two simple things about Paul, the preacher. He was a preacher on fire and he was a preacher on song. Friends, if you're not passionate about the gospel, then you don't really deeply believe it. You cannot, as a Christian, just enjoy talking about the gospel. It is so it's serious and so important that it will always grab you. And there for Paul, you see, when he saw idolatry, he didn't say, what interesting buildings. What a, what a culture. Isn't it nice to know about their culture? Isn't it lovely to think how they worship? Does it really matter? It was paganism, but it's beautiful. Paganism is not beautiful. And uh, Paul, it says in verse 16, was greatly distressed. The actual Greek word is the word paroxysm. He got so worked up he didn't know how to speak. You know what paroxysm means? What works you up so that you really get sort of choked sometimes? Well, I can think of many things it might be. But for Paul, it was the honour of God that was at stake. And so he was passionate. On fire about idolatry on fire about ignorance, and on fire about arrogance. He was on fire about idolatry. He had that paroxysm because, you see, he saw that this very intellectual place of Athens was actually lost. With all their philosophy and all their debate, the glory that was Greece and the grandeur that was Rome, was I think Alexander Pope wrote about, um, there was an emptiness and he thought that inscription that he saw in verse 20, 23 summed it all up. To an unknown God, they hadn't a clue. And so they had idols 
and they, they covered up their intellectualism with a kind of veneer of religion. And alongside the idolatry, he met, of course, these people in verse 18, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And they were represented people that still around. The Stoic was the man who believed that he was in charge. I am the captain of, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. The philosopher that believes you can do it in your own strength. You are your own God. You make it. Oh, there are plenty of those around. And the Stoic had a great world view. Believe in a world system. They were thinking people. But they were completely humanist. They believed that man could do it. As a young man, I used to listen to Bertrand Russell on the Brains Trust. That's a sign. I'm an old man. And Bertrand Russell became Lord Russell. And he was a humanist. And he believed that you could make a different world by man's own effort. And you read his autobiography and it's pathetic. He finished utterly disillusioned. He lived through the awful things of Belson and the things that happened. And he couldn't believe that people who were civilized could behave like that. He actually was believing that man, given the right environment, would always respond well. And our world says nonsense. And he died utterly bereft of any hope. When I die, it'll be darkness within, just as it's darkness without now. That was Lord Russell. They were Stoics. And the Epicureans, of course, were those who lived for pleasure and for whom the gospel of Jesus Christ would be a real spoil sport. There was a poet, Swinburne, who wrote, Thou hast conquered, O pale Galilean, the world has grown grey by thy breath. You've had more poetry from me tonight than I've ever done before. There's no more, you're quite safe. That is, Swinburne actually said, the Christian faith is the, is the opposite of, epic, of, the, of the Epicurean idea, the hedonist, that you live for pleasure. And uh, the intriguing thing is that amongst all these people with their philosophies, the one thing they couldn't stand was Jesus and the resurrection. And they called Paul, in verse uh, 18, a babbler. Funny word, the Greek word means a seed picker. The tramp who wanders around picking up bits from here and there, you know. Bits of the uh, uh, fag end from the road and, and so on. That's the, that's the seed picker. Almost, they sneered at Paul. And just remember, Paul was a highly intellectual man. Paul could have argued these people very well and he would try to, but at the end of the day, he does not mind being thought a fool for the sake of the gospel. And I say this to all of you, not least to students. You will discover that the most illiberal people in the world are liberals. The ones who have liberal ideas are the most angry when anybody dares suggest that we've got the truth. So long as you don't dare to believe that you know the truth, they don't mind. But the moment you actually stand there, the liberals can be desperately illiberal. I have never known people get more angry than liberals. And the Epicureans and the Stoics didn't like Paul because he upset their neat little world. But he was on fire about idolatry. He had to preach it. Secondly, he was on fire about ignorance. Verse 22, I see in every way you are very religious. The old version said somewhat superstitious. 
For the word religious doesn't, of course, mean Christian. It just means you are that kind of people. And they had gods for everything that there was. But just in case you hadn't got a god to cover your particular need, you had a, an unknown god. Some years ago, Martin and I were in, in India on a tour, and I was in Madras, and I, I noticed a, a, a very smart, pleasant-looking young gentleman offering some food to a, a, an idol that was there. And I, I watched him, and he was very pleasant. He spoke to me, and I thought, well, here's a chance. So I told him what I was, that I was a Christian preacher. And I said, can I possibly ask you, do you really think, as a student, he told me he was a student, do you think that actually the idol is going to consume your food? He smiled at me. He said, of course not. I am a reasonably intelligent man, said he to me. <laughs> Take that. And then, so I then said to him, well, uh, kind of, why are you doing it then? Well, he said, you see, I, I've got my final exams coming soon. I haven't worked as hard as I should. I need all the help I can get. So I suppose that's one way you can look at it. But you see, he didn't believe it. There's no way this Hindu god, this stone, could make any difference to his way of life. And the intelligent man knew it. But you see, he was, it was ignorance, utter ignorance, from a highly intelligent man. Now, uh, you see what Paul does? How does Paul treat an ignorant person? What does he say to them? And this is the, this is the courage of the man. I, I marvel this man's courage. Verse 23, the end. What you worship as something unknown, I'm going to tell you about. Now, don't you like that? A lot better. I stood outside a church not long ago at the beginning of... Uh, the academic year, and they were obviously wanting to welcome students, and the, 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 the notice board said, are you asking questions? So are we. Now, I thought it was rather interesting. You see, no suggestion we've got any answers for you, but you come in, we are asking questions, so are we. Dare I suggest we may have got some answers? Has the church just asking questions? Paul said, you say an unknown God, now I'll tell you what God is like. In the Old Testament, Hosea says that God's people were being destroyed for lack of knowledge. They were ignorant about the God they were supposed to worship. And it's intriguing that in Romans 1, when Paul is talking about the sins of the pagan world, he said they are without excuse. Oh, they know God from their conscience. They know God from creation. So when they make idols in the form of animals and so on, they're without excuse. Why do they do it? Oh, because, you see, it's much easier to have a God who is in, un, at your command. The same Isaiah who wrote Isaiah 42 that we read all about the Creator God, to which we come in just a moment, also taunts, if you read on in Isaiah 43 and 4, he taunts idolatry. And says, have you seen what they do? They chop a bit of wood, and with a bit of the wood they make an idol, and with the other bit of the wood they make a fire, and they roast their meat on it, and then they bow down before the God they've made. And the ignorance of the Athenians was, you see, that Paul could not accept, I want to tell you what God is like, you are without excuse. I want to tell you the truth. And he's also, uh, he was also passionate on fire about arrogance. But that comes in a minute, just before I do it. I, I know a few people here. 
but I don't know most of you tonight, which is nice. You may think, what's he talking about arrogance? Isn't he an arrogant preacher because he dared suggest that people are wrong? Have you, have you noticed what we do in our day? Anybody who actually believes that they know the truth are deemed intolerant and arrogant. It's almost arrogant to say, I actually know something. I actually believe things are true. No, the arrogance of these Athenians, verse 26, was that they thought, being Greeks, they were the special people, and God had made all races. You know what the Greeks called everybody else? Everybody else were barbarians. And you know what the word barbarians means? It is barbars. There's a football team that play with the other ball that I don't understand, the, the oval one, and they call themselves the barbars, uh, the barbarians. And the Greeks thought that the rest of the world were like sheep. Barbars. And that arrogance had to be destroyed. Just before I go to my second half about a preacher on song, it will not matter however passionate you are if you don't know the truth. But equally, if you know the truth but there is no passion, you will never stir people. Nor will they really believe that you believe it's the truth. You see, sadly it seems to me that all too often Christians who know the truth almost think, well, it's sort of take it or leave it. What I believe. But if you believe what these young people say they believe and have gone through this baptism tonight... You can never keep it quiet. But what are the truths? A preacher on song? Well, the truths are the same truths he preached to the Thessalonians in the Jewish synagogue. One, about God the Creator. And here he's very biblical. Verse 24, The God who made the world cannot be put in temples made by hands. You have a temple to an unknown God. The real God you can't put in any building. Oh, that's 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27, Solomon. Isaiah 66, verse 1, it's real Bible stuff. We read in Isaiah 42, you can't put the Creator in temples made by hands. Incidentally, Christians, I hope you believe that and don't get bogged down by buildings. We're living in an age when we are moving into very intriguing territory in Christian ministry. Exciting, but we mustn't let establishment and buildings hold us back. God the Creator is the one who is sovereign. And uh, he points out that the same Creator has created everybody. Verse 26. He doesn't need us. We need Him. And He's made it so that everybody should be able to reach out to Him. And He even quotes their poet in verse 28. Now, don't get Paul wrong. He knew the poet meant Zeus the God. And of course, the God that Paul worshipped was not Zeus. He was a very different God. He was a God and Father of our Lord Jesus. But he found this quote. Even you believe that somehow human beings have to have a relationship with God. I want to tell you that the Creator God has made us so that we shall only find peace in Him. A person without God is only partly alive. And we shall only find reality when we have a relationship with our Creator God. But he moves on. God the Creator. Secondly, on song with God the Judge. 
Therefore, verse 29, since we are God's offspring, we shouldn't think you can actually worship idols of wood, silver, gold, stone. They can't be good. They're just, they're the ones we've made. If you watch from this new age sort of gods, the Madonna sort of idea, you know, uh, and we are, they are their own gods. They, they, they are God. God is us. We are God. That's the sort of new age idea. And of course, there's no reference to a God who may judge us. Now, please note, Paul does not stop short of asking them to repent. Remember where he is? He's in front of the Areopagus. It's like being called out to the uh, to the British scientists, the Royal Society, you know, the, the really important intellectual people. And I can imagine, including myself, any Christian who got there, we'd be sort of terribly anxious not to cause offence. We'd be so aware of their intellectual brilliance that we'd sort of try to argue a case about the intellectual possibilities for the Christian faith. Paul didn't. He called them to repent. He preached at them. He recognised that he'd never get this chance again. He'd only stand in front of the Areopagus once in his lifetime. So I'm not here, thinks Paul, just to make a good impression. Here are men and women for whom Christ died, who face an eternal destiny without God. So he calls on them to repent. Verse 30 in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but he now calls on them everywhere to repent. If you think that's Paul, listen to Peter, Acts 10:42. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that Jesus is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. Judgment is always there. God is judge. He has set a day when he will judge the world. And these intellectual pagans need to be reminded they didn't like the idea of judgment, but judgment there would be. God the Creator, God the Judge, and mercifully, thirdly, God the Saviour. But just notice how it moves on. He has said today, verse 31, when he will judge the world with justice. Oh, I find that so comforting. What is God going to do with the people who've never heard? How do I as a minister live with my conscience when I've tried to preach and I know I've failed so often? Well, the final judgment will be just. I leave that to him. I just preach the gospel and God will do the final judgment. He knows which of you belongs to him and which don't. And his just judgment will be absolutely just. But see how it goes. He will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed and he has given assurance by raising him from the dead. Who is going to judge on that day? Jesus. Oh, doesn't that make it easier? Mm, maybe. I can just envisage a moment when I stand before a distant almighty God and I can stand in front of that God and say to that God, okay, you can condemn me to hell, but I never had a chance. But if I stand in front of the one who bears in his hands the marks of the nails where he died for my sins, I have no excuse. I have every chance. For that final resurrection day is not for the good folk, not for the religious folk, but for those 
who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And you see, it takes the excuse away, but it gives the eternal hope. He is given proof by raising him from the dead, and when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some sneered. The Jews believed in the immortality, sorry, the Athenians believed in the immortality of the soul. That's a sort of reasonable doctrine that somehow there is a bit of us that goes on forever and ever. But any idea that God could become a person and that he could be raised from the dead, unthinkable. So they sneered. I've only occasionally had people sneer at my preaching. I don't like it. Perhaps if I'd been more faithful, I'd had more people sneer at my preaching. They sneered. But some said, we want to hear you again on this subject. I'm going to do what I very rarely do. I'm going, before I finish, to read a few lines from a book. Uh, It's not my scene of quoting from books. But this is a a very interesting statement by a man called James S. Stewart, a remarkable Scottish preacher whom I was privileged to know in my Scottish days. And uh, he was a great preacher, and he writes a commentary. Uh, he, he, he's writing a book called A Faith to Proclaim, and he picks up this. And he comments on that phrase. You see it in verse 32, we want to hear you again on this subject. Here, James Stewart. Now, all right, concentrate just for 30 seconds while I read it. Here we are. This is talking about this, we want to hear you again on this subject. I used to think, says James Stewart, that this was just polite evasion. The eternal refuge of the procrastinating spirit. I'm not sure of it now. I think they were really touched and moved by this dramatic kerygma, which is the Greek word for the message, the gospel. This resurrection message, righteousness vindicated, captivity led captive, death and the demons defeated, they wanted to believe it. Now listen to this, my next bit, and just say, isn't this our world? For that pagan world was in the grip of fear. Neither philosophy, nor mythology, neither astrology, nor mystery cult have been able to roll back the dark shadow of irrevocable fate. The race was in bondage to a destiny decreed and fixed forever in the unfriendly stars and the terror of a hostile cosmos held the human spirit in thrall. So these men at Athens... Resolved to hear the Apostle again, for wistfully they hoped his message might be true. And as I read that again, I thought, that's our world. A world which is looking to its future. Everything's uncertain, global warming, climate change, all the uncertainties, terrorism on every hand. Fearsome. Resurrection message? They hoped it might be true. Nobody else has an answer. Four young people this night have said they believe it's true. They've been prepared to go through something that, you know, a cynic would say, and it's strange, ducked in water. They've done it because they believe the message it stands for is true. I stand here 60 years a Christian and I want to stand with them and tell them I still think it's true. I know it's true. 
They've staked their lives on the reality of a Jesus, a Savior who died, in whom they can face the final day with absolute conviction and for whom they can live with passion and with truth. I pray for them that 60 years on, they'll stand up somewhere and say, still true, and I witness with them. How about you? We're going to sing in a moment about the resurrection glory. I hope you believe it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the courage of Paul. Thank you for his passion. We pray that we who believe might have a similar passion, confidence in the gospel. Again, we pray for these four who made their witness tonight. Keep them ever true. And may we who've watched and shared and prayed, may we not be ashamed to confess the faith of Christ crucified. And any of us who may perhaps be inclined to smile, if not to sneer, may we stop and think. Have we any other message of hope for a world? Is it not possibly true the God who made us sent his son to be a saviour who one day will judge us thank you Lord that in him we have hope and yours be the glory risen conquering son Amen